Welcome to How To with the Communications Clinic. In today's podcast, I talk to Alan Alda, seven-time Emmy and Golden Globe Award winner, Oscar-nominated actor, the irrepressible Hawkeye Pierce in MASH, the engaging Arnie Vinnick in The West Wing, but today he's talking to us as a founder of the Alda Center for Communicating Science. That's his real passion, helping academics, scientists, doctors, and researchers communicate clearly. Clear, understandable communication can change and save lives. Let's learn how to do just that. So, Alan, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you join us today. Thank you. I'm delighted. So we know you so well from iconic roles you've had on screen. And now your biggest role over the past decade or more has been in the field of communicating science. So I want to start with with one of your quotes. People are dying because we can't communicate. So tell me how this is the case. Well, when I wrote that, we weren't in the middle of COVID-19. Now... People are dying in plain sight. At all times, people are in danger of dying with poor communication because if your doctor says, take three pills a day and you don't really pay much attention to it and he doesn't explain to you why you desperately need those three pills and and if he doesn't have your trust, then, you, you know, some percentage of people are going to go from that. They're going to die. So tell me then, you're an actor. What can an actor tell a doctor or a scientist about communication? Something very fundamental about communication because you can't really act well. I mean, there are plenty of actors who act badly. And at times I've been one of them. And all of us can give a bad performance. But to give a good performance, one of the essential ingredients is making contact with the other actors. Or if you're doing a monologue, which Shakespeare is full of and a lot of modern plays are full of, you have to make contact with the audience. You have to really be talking to somebody. That per- You can't be acting as though you're talking to somebody. You have to actually let them into your consciousness. It, it's been documented, unfortunately, that the average time doctors spend listening to a patient before they interrupt it's something like 19 seconds, and I think it got better. I think it's now up to 22 seconds or something like that. I don't have the numbers right, but the, the problem is one of, the, one of the most important parts of conversing or communicating is listening, is hearing who the other person is, what their background is, what, how they're understanding you. Are they understanding you fully? or in terms of some other way that doesn't really incorporate what you're trying to communicate. you got to get feedback. you got to know who you're talking to. As an actor, you're working off a script, and your colleague is working off a script. So are you actively listening, or are you just reading your script? That's such an important question. You can just learn your lines and say them when your turn comes which is the way a lot of conversations go. A lot of conversations are me listening to you, listening for the cue that you've stopped talking, so now it's my turn, without paying any attention to what you said. You could do a simulation of a scene by me just saying my line, you saying your line next. But something doesn't happen. A play doesn't take place. An event doesn't happen unless... I say my line not because it's in the script, but because you've made me say it. 
you've made me say it in a certain way. This gets into some finer points, but I don't necessarily say it the way I've decided to say it up until now. If I'm really paying attention to you, I say it in response to what you give me. And that changes the color of it. It changes the communication. It has an extra level of meaning. And when people communicate with each other by letting the other person have an effect on them, then you get a real exchange and you build up more trust. How am I going to trust somebody who never listens to what I say but just keeps giving me his sales pitch? So tell me then how using your acting techniques and employing those techniques, you go about making a scientist more understandable or a doctor more relatable. What happens? Interestingly, we start with improvisation exercises because improv gives you the experience of connecting with the other person. And if you, if you don't if you don't really connect, it just stops. It, just, it can't happen. The, 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 the exercise or the game, the improv game you're playing, just doesn't work. So you, you, simple exercises like mirroring each other's movements, uh, tossing an imaginary ball back and forth, it seems like child play. But it's, it's a very important beginning step to actually just paying attention to the other person. So in your book, you talk a lot about empathy. We're very familiar with sympathy. We're very familiar with compassion. What exactly is empathy and how is it important to communication? Yeah, it's a difficult word because most people I hear using it all have their own definitions of it. A lot of people think it's compassion. A lot of people think it's caring about the other person and wanting to better their condition. It can lead to that. I don't think without empathy you can actually get to a position of truly wanting to or being able to help someone else. But all empathy is in the way I look at it, especially with regard to communication, is getting a good estimate of what the other person is feeling and and drifting over a little bit into thinking, which is... uh, not strictly empathy. Empathy pretty much is feeling. But but just understanding what they're going through. I'm, I'm sometimes skeptical about empathy, though, because, you know, when somebody says, I feel your pain, if I've broken my leg, you don't feel my pain. No, you're telling me. I don't believe a word of it. Yeah. <laughs> so what is, what is it then? Well, I think what they're trying to say is, I think they're trying to say, I sympathize with you. But there is, a, there is, by the way, and it goes back a long time, I think, I think John Locke was the first person to m- mention this, that there is a tendency when we see somebody in pain to have a reflex action as though we had the same pain. It's, it's, a, little, it's a little ephemeral, though. It's not, it's, you, if you're choking, I don't start choking. But but I but I can sense what it must be like if I watch you, and I, uh, there's a little bit of that. But that's not what you have to rely on. I think what you have to rely on is all your senses and your cognition to see, take in all the cues you get from the other person, 
And when in communication, one of the first things you really want to know is, is this person on the same wavelength? Are they listening? Are they caring? Does it matter to them? If it doesn't matter to them, it doesn't matter how great your explanation is. Because it's, a, I suppose, a sensual thing then, empathy, and you, you, you want to let all your senses understand what the other person is thinking, is it possible to teach somebody empathy? Yes. Yeah, there's a woman in Boston who teaches physicians empathy and seems to have a lot of success at it. I think there are exercises you can do. I've, I've experimented with, on my own life, in my own life, with uh, seeing if I can improve my empathy by trying to get an estimate of people I don't really know. Like I'm trying to, I'm looking at your face now. You're thousands of miles away. And I'm trying to see the changing emotions. You just laughed. You're, you're listening now intently. I'm paying attention to what's going on inside your head. To the extent that I can make an estimate of it, I'll never really know. But the effort to find out is important because that puts us in better touch. So do you think we just have to try? Like even trying will make us better communicators? Well, I think so. I think trying, trying for the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, most of us try to make the other person believe what we believe. If I'm trying, on the other hand, to try to, to see, if I'm trying to see where you are, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? Does that match up with anything in my experience? Can I share something with you rather than hit you over the head with it? To that extent, empathy is really important in the sense that I don't don't just use you as the target of my communication. I use you as a communication partner. Tell me, you mentioned that the individual who is teaching doctors to be more empathetic, that to me sounds like a double-edged sword. I think it would be emotionally exhausting for a physician to feel everything that the patient, everyone who comes in the door feels. Is it very important for doctors to have that much empathy or could it detract from their performance? That's very well said. And that's why uh, this woman who's called Helen Reese teaches them how to get in with empathy and how to get out. Otherwise, they'd get pulled down in the quicksand with the patient's uh, pain and emotion. But without, without being able to get in, and many doctors, perhaps, perhaps because they know that, that you can't, you'll burn out if you, if you suffer with every single patient you see during the day and experience death at 9 o'clock and a child with a problem at 10 o'clock and... You, you just can't take it. So some people defend themselves by uh, not, not letting anybody in at all. Does it perhaps also protect the, protect the patient? You talked in, in your book about one individual, a friend of yours, I think it was, that had a, an issue with his foot. And when he went to the doctor, the doctor was like, oh, no, it's whatever ailment it is. It was, it was plantar fasciitis, which is a, a, a pain in your foot. <laughs> and it's a bit, it, it, can, it can be very painful, but it's not, a, it's not a life and death problem. But he had had it once, so he literally felt her pain. 
And he said, oh, my God, you've got plantar fasciitis. <laughs> she thought she was going to die from it. So, so it, 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 there, there was a little lapse in empathy there, I think. He was filled with empathy right up to the point where he thought about what she would be going through if he cried out in despair, you've got plantar fasciitis. <laughs> Um, tell me, I, uh, there was also something you once said, and I think it was probably the, uh, the most powerful of, of a lot of very powerful quotes, but you said, I don't think we're really listening unless we're willing to be changed by the other person. Yeah, I, I have to say that's my feeling. I, 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 can't, I can't really recommend it to other people much because it sounds so extreme. But what I mean by it is much less extreme than it sounds. What I mean is, If I'm talking to somebody, if I believe, at least for a moment, that this person, no matter how different from me they are, no matter maybe even how crazy they sound, if I believe for a moment that this person has something that can change my life for the better, what is it? then I'm really listening to what they're saying. I'm listening deeply. I'm listening not just to the words that I might disagree with. I'm listening to the impulse that produced those words. The person may be a really sincere person and off the track. And the sincerity may be very helpful to me to tune into. It might make me more sincere. If it'll change me in a good way, And I accept that as a possibility. I find for myself that it helps me listen better and relate better to the other people, and we have a better time talking. By the way, I'm not perfect. It doesn't come out that way every time. Tell me as well, you know, there's another story that you've told in the book, and it's the first individual that you interviewed, the first scientist that you interviewed for your, your incredibly successful TV show, um, the, the scientist with the solar paneled car. Tell us, tell us about him, right? And how you interacted with him and what you learned from that more importantly. I did learn. I, I had told the producers, look, I want to, I'll do the show, but I want to interview the scientists myself because I'll learn so much that way. So they didn't know if they were getting a pig in a poke or what. So uh, I walk in. I walk on into the set and start. The scientist had a car with solar panels all over it, and he was going to take part in a race for solar paneled cars. So I tried to be casual with him, and I said, "Gee, it's just great. You get all these parts off the shelf. What made me think he got them off the shelf? I don't know." He said, no, he didn't. We made them. He looked offended. So right away I found out I'm not, I'm not listening, I'm telling. And then I tried to recoup it by getting more friendly with the solar panel. I rested my hand on one. And he said, please don't do that. You're liable to kill it. <laughs> so that went well. And so you interviewed 700 scientists after that for 11 years. What, what did you do differently on the back of that? First of all, I listened, I asked questions, and I realized that my curiosity combined with my ignorance was my greatest advantage. Ignorance is a really good thing to have as long as you have curiosity along with it. 
ignorance without curiosity, not so good. Well, you know, it's so funny because only recently somebody um, very wise told me to embrace my ignorance, you know, and use it. Um, and you are you are the, the second person I've, I've encountered that uses ignorance with positive connotations, you know. So it has to be combined with curiosity before it, before it is a positive. That's true. And, and as you say that, it occurs to me that it also has to be combined with letting go of feeling stupid if, you're ign- if you show people you're ignorant about something. The, f- the first couple of times you do it, it might feel awkward. But once you get used to it, once I got used to it, it was a wonderful feeling of relief to be able to say, wait, what's that word you used? I don't, I don't know if I know what that means. Because if you don't know, somebody else doesn't know. And, and who cares who knows who doesn't know? We've all spent our lives doing things that are important to us. I've encountered some things in my life that you haven't, and you have some things that I haven't. I don't have to know everything you know. But if I can ask you to explain something to me, that's nice for both of us. Do you think we grow out of curiosity, Alan? I've got a, a two-year-old daughter, and the world is infinitely fascinating to her. You know, do we, do we grow out of that as, as, as we get older? You know, we seem to, and I keep asking that question too. I don't, I don't really know why. It, 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 there's this interesting thing. I don't know. I, I shouldn't get into it because I'm not a neuroscientist. I just have heard these stories from neuroscientists. I mean, the, the idea that we learn at an extremely rapid pace at your daughter's age and, and even before that, and at a certain point, and I forget when it is, there's a pruning of neurons that takes place. That seems like an odd thing to do. Wouldn't you want more and more neurons? Wouldn't that be better for you? But if you kept learning at that rapid pace all your life, one scientist said to me, well, your head would explode <laughs> because you gotta, you got to pace yourself. you got to retain some control over what's coming in. But I, I don't think anybody really knows why we lose some measure of curiosity. And the, the wonderful thing is the, the creative artists, the scientists, people who maintain that curiosity. What can I do next? What can I take these two things and make something different out of? Those people stay in a state that's a little bit more like what the children have, I think. Talk to me then about the knowledge that the people who come to your school have, you know, and and how it is almost a barrier to their translating that knowledge, you know, so the curse of knowledge, essentially. Yeah, the the curse of knowledge was a term, interestingly, uh, invented by two economists, I think. And it had to do with undervaluing what you know about when you know a subject really deeply in all its intricacies, the tendency is to want to communicate about that in the terms you understand it, in the terms you've spent your time learning about it. And somebody else hearing it for the first time is just blinded by this this snowstorm of details So the curse of knowledge is not that it's a curse to have knowledge, but the curse is when you have a lot of deep knowledge, you can get mired in it. And when you try to communicate about it, 
you don't you don't make it understandable to the other person because you understand it in its complexity. So you assume that it's going to be understood in its complexity by the other person. And that seems hard to believe. Why would I believe you understand it in a complex way? Simply because I understand it in a complex way. I hear it in my head in perfect tune. And the, the game that we play to illustrate this was invented by a graduate student about 20 years ago at Stanford. And she would tap out a rhythm, or she would ask a person in an audience to tap out a rhythm. And what's that tune? Sounds like happy birthday, but in fact, it's the Star Spangled Banner. But they both have the same rhythm. And the point to me is, if you tell them the details and you don't fill them in on the story behind it, on the emotion behind it, you're not letting them in on the melody. It's just the bare bones. It's, a skeleton isn't nearly as good as a whole blood-filled person with flesh. So if you could give our listeners one thing to change in the way they communicate to help them effectively do that, to, to, to be effective in that way, what would it be? Well, one good thing is what you and I have been trying to do, but it's hard over the Internet, is to really make sure the other person has concluded a thought. Because we'd like to uh, respond to the first person, the first phrase we hear that we don't like. When, in fact, the person might be trying to say something nuanced, nuanced, that requires saying two or three things before they're finished. So waiting, but here, here's the thing. If I say, wait till the other person is finished talking, all that is is a tip. And we're not going to get very far with tips because we've been ingesting tips on communicating and everything else for decades. And experience changes the way you work. Tips very rarely change anything. And my example that you may remember from the book, I think it's in the book, there's a stop sign, near, not a stop sign, a, a, a speed sign, a speed limit sign near where I live. It says 20 miles an hour. And I used to routinely go past it at 40 miles an hour. didn't seem important to go 20 in that place. There was nothing there. Why were they telling me to go 20 miles an hour? <laughs> so... One day I got stopped by a policeman, and he, he gave me a ticket. From then on, I never went more than 20 miles an hour past that sign. The sign was a tip. The ticket was an experience. How then do you think that we can communicate when we're all behind masks now? If we can't read emotions, we can't see what the other person is feeling or listen with their eyes, essentially. I know you're right. There is online a test for empathy in which you read people's eyes. Mm. And uh, so there is something you can get out of just the eyes. But it's very interesting. If, I, if I'm in a group of people wearing masks and I say something funny, I have to say, is anybody smiling? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a killer, isn't it? <laughs> a killer for comedy. <laughs> 
That's so funny. Um, yeah, no. So and I, I do think that uh, that's interesting. You know, we're, we're living remotely um, and we're living behind masks. So those cues and those signs are, are, are very well concealed now. Yeah, we don't know what price we'll pay for that. There may be maybe something we're missing that's important. Hugging, things like that. Uh, just being together in close contact with friends and Maybe even just sitting in an audience with anonymous people is something that we can pay a price neglecting. Well, look, your advice is just absolutely invaluable. So thank you so much for your time. I hope you come to Ireland soon. Thank you. I always love it when I do come to Ireland. And I, I thank you for a fun conversation. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back with another how-to very soon.